Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We're starting a new series today on the letter to the Ephesians. I'm really excited about it. Um, as I said on the email that I sent, uh, I've been we've been wanting to preach through, through the letter to the Ephesians for a while now, but um, I guess we always feel like maybe there is some preliminary work that we need to do. So, for example, when we were uh, uh, when we went through Luke and Acts, originally we wanted to preach the book of Acts. But we felt like we needed to go through Luke before we went through Acts. And so we just took one extra year, right? No big deal. Uh, And eventually we got to the book of Acts. And so uh, finally, we're getting to the book of Ephesians. And I'm I'm excited about that. Um, And I want to, well, let's let's open with prayer. And then I want to ask you a, a question, just something to reflect. God, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Thank you for the letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for having inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter, not just for the benefit of the Ephesians, but for the benefit of your church throughout the ages. Help us to understand this letter. Help us to... Um, be transformed by the knowledge of your son, Jesus. Help us to understand the power that you have um, that you have given your son, Jesus, and that is now available to the church since he is the head of the church. Help us to grasp and understand the love that you have poured on us, how you have loved us immensely. Please empower us by your spirit to understand this book. Please fill me with your spirit to preach your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are in Ephesians. And kind of the reflection that I that I want us to think about for a moment is when you think about the, the, um, the reputation of the church, now let's limit ourselves to this country, to, to the United States. When you think about the reputation of the church in, in the United States, would you say that the church has a good reputation amongst outsiders? No, I would say no. And, you know, while I believe that part of that is, is simply because, you know, like Jesus said, the world would hate us. Um, sadly, I do believe that for many or for, for part of, of that bad reputation that the church has, I do believe that the one to blame is the church. I mean, we don't have to look very far. We can look at, you know, uh, people like... Um, Ravi Zachariah, 
right? Who was this very well-known, popular uh, apologist, evangelist. He was uh, respected and loved by many. But then it turned out that he was a he was an abuser. He was a predator, and and the church was just covering up for him. And then you look at, uh, you know, you looked at the documentary. I haven't seen it, but I've heard things about it. The documentary on on Hillsong, and same thing. You see all the 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 rottenness of or that is within the church. And then. Um, you know, you think about the Southern Baptist Convention and everything that is going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, all the abuse that has been uh, revealed and all the covering up that has been revealed as well, and so on, right? The list, the list goes on. You can think of uh, different, you know, different extremes within the church. You can, uh, I, I, I don't look at my Twitter account as often as I used to, but every time I do, I get depressed because it's just a bunch of Christians fighting with each other. You know, it's just a bunch of people arguing on, on different uh, sides of the, of the, I don't know, the debate. And unfortunately, all I see is a lack of unity. All I see is that the church is not doing great in this country. And, and sorry to open with such a, such a <laughs> pessimistic, uh, um, you know, reflection, but the point that, that I'm bringing this up is because I believe that one of the main reasons why the church is doing so poorly today in this country is because the church does not understand her identity. It's because the church does not understand what it means to be the church. It's because the church is not really looking at the word of God and letting the word of God, uh, you know, shed light onto who we are as a church. And so I'm really excited that we're opening, that we're starting the book of Ephesians because I believe that the book of Ephesians sheds so much light into who the church is, into what God has done, how he has gathered, how, how he has created a new humanity, how he has made one people, one person out of two different uh, ethnic groups, how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The book of Ephesians tells us a lot about the church. And I believe that if the church in America would pay more attention to the book of Ephesians, to the letter to the Ephesians, we would be doing a lot better. We would be a lot more influential. We would actually be doing our job of spreading the kingdom of God in this country, in this world. But unfortunately, we're not. And I'm speaking obviously in in very general terms. So today we're going to have a, uh, an overview of the book of Ephesians, more specifically uh, chapters one through three. Um, the book has six, six chapters and the book is actually very neatly divided in, into two main sections, chapters one through three and then chapters four through six and is divided by one little word. The word is therefore. And so in, ver- in chapters one through three, as I was sharing last Sunday, it is more focused on the indicatives. It is more focused on the things that God has done for us. It is more focused on, uh, on the blessings that God has given us, on the power that God has given us through Christ, on the love that God has given us, on the new life that we have, the new humanity that we are. 
And then in chapter four, Paul says, therefore, in light of all of these things that I just told you about what God has done for us, this is how we, the church, should live in this world. This is how we should behave in this world. These are the things that we should be doing. That's the, the imperative of the, of the gospel. And so again, today we're only going to focus on chapters one through three. And then eventually, I think probably once we get to chapter four, we will do another overview sermon on chapters four through six. Um, so we start out with chapter one. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Actually, verses 1 through 10 first. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul opens his letter with this beautiful poem of, all of the blessings that God has, or, or many of the blessings that God has given his church, many of the things that God has done for us. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into these. I'm looking forward to uh, eventually next Sunday, start looking into these in more detail. But for now, I think it's, it, it will suffice to say, it is incredible what God has done for us. It is incredible how he has chosen us, how he has predestined us, how he has adopted us, how he has redeemed us with his blood, how he has uh, made known to us the mystery, just all the amazing things that God has done for his church. The church is a people that has received all of these spiritual blessings from God. Now, one key point that is often missed, one key point that, that uh, sometimes people don't know exactly what to do with this in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, or actually starting in verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so this introduces one of the main points of the book of of the letter to the Ephesians, which is that in Christ, God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth. And this brings us back to, to Old Testament temple theology. And in Old Testament temple theology, for, for the Jews, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. 
the, or, or, you know, beginning with the tabernacle. The tabernacle is said to have the, the footstool of God's throne in it. And so that's where, where God from his heavenly abode was actually dwelling with mankind. And then, you know, we go to the, to the temple and same thing. That's where heaven and earth meet. And so what Paul is declaring here or what he is starting to declare, and he will make it more clear throughout the rest of the, of the letter, is that the church is that place where heaven on earth and earth meet. The church is that place where, where through the work of Christ, God is uniting all things to himself. In other words, he is saying the church is the temple of God. And that's, again, that's, that's probably the main theme that runs throughout the entire letter, that the church is the temple of God. I had a, 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 an interesting conversation this week with a guy that was uh, fresh out of jail, like all of his belongings in, belongings in a bag and all, like literally fresh out of jail. Um, and one of the things that he was saying is that um, well, he was fresh out of jail and he was very very eager to instill change in this world like he had a very you know great vision for helping the homeless community and and he just seemed very optimistic and one of the things that that he told me is that you know he believed that all of humanity is good. And that the end goal is unity, right? For him, the perfect world would look like all of humanity united and working together for, for a common goal, right? And, you know, even though there were many things in which we disagreed, I, I made sure to let him know, hey, I actually agree with you on this. I do believe that the, you know, the end goal is humanity united, improving the world, but then I... I qualified it with the same way, in the same way that the Bible qualifies it. This unity is in Christ. God is uniting all things. God is uniting heaven and earth. God is, God is uniting all of humanity, but he is not just doing it for the sake of unity. He is doing it in Christ. He is uniting all things in Christ. And obviously, you know, that he disagreed with me. He didn't think that that was the only way to achieve unity. Um, and we will talk, we will talk more about this as we, you know, as we get into more detail, uh, in the following weeks. In verses 11 through 14, Paul does, uh, something very interesting. He, he, he makes a very important transition because notice how so far in the, in the letter, he has been talking in the first person plural. He, he has been saying we, right? In, in, uh, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be um, blameless before him. He predestined us and everything is about, you know, us. He's talking in the, perper, in the first person plural. Uh, and that is, he's talking about the Jews. He's saying he did all of these things for us Jews. He's including himself. But then notice what he does in the, in the following verses, verse 11 through 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first ones 
or who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But then notice what he does in verse 13. In him, you also, he's talking to the Ephesians, to the Gentiles. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I believe what Paul is doing here is he is listing all of these blessings that we, and when he says we, he's, you know, he seems to be talking about the Jews. He says when, that we received. And then in verse 13, he transitions into saying, in him, you also, when you heard the gospel, when you believed the word of truth, when you were saved, you were also included in this family. And all of these blessings that were originally ours, the Jews, are now yours in Christ. You Ephesians, you Gentile believers, you have been included with the blessings that God has given the people of Israel. This inheritance is not only for the Jews, but now this inheritance is for all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles. And this is another one of the main themes of the letter, the unity between Jews and Gentiles. Notice, by the way, Paul's Trinitarian theology. A lot of people say, hey, the word, the word Trinity is not in the Bible and therefore they go to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And sure, granted, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but notice Paul's Trinitarian theology all throughout the book, but we see, we see it clearly here in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is thanking God, the Father, for all of the blessings that he has given his people. And then he says that all of these blessings are through Christ, right? Notice how many times he says in him or through him, in Christ, in Christ. And then in verse 13, notice how these blessings are ours through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of these blessings, of this inheritance. Now in the following verses, the recounting of all of these blessings um, is followed by a prayer. So Paul praises God. He, he gives a, a, a poem, a doxology of God. And then he prays for the Ephesians in verses 15 through 23. So let's start reading those. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Dot, dot, dot. We'll get to the next section for now. But here, Paul is praying for the, for the Ephesians. He is thanking God, first of all, that they believed the gospel. He is thanking God for their salvation. But then he is asking God so that they would understand, so that God would give them the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom, so that they would understand a few things. That they would understand the hope to which he has called them, 
that they would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance. And I believe the main point of this section, that they will understand the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would understand the power that is at work in the church. Paul really wants them to, to, to understand that the same power through which God raised Jesus from the dead, the same power through which Jesus was, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven and he was crowned and he is seating at, he is seated at the right hand of God and he has received all authority in heaven and on earth and, and all of his enemies. Uh, uh, well, why do I make things up? I'll just read it here. Uh, verse 20, that he, this is the great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praying that the Ephesians will understand that this power is available to the church. And I believe, or I should say, well, can you imagine if the church in America understood this power that is at work in the church? Can you imagine what difference it would make if the church really understood that God is fulfilling his infinite plan is this mystery that has been revealed to unite all things in Jesus through the church or in the church? I mean, of course, we understand that it is Jesus who is ultimately uniting these things, but he is doing it in the church. Uh, uh, notice in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. It is what fills all in all. Can you imagine what the church would look like if we really understood the power that is at work in us? Unfortunately, the American church is more influenced by the power of Fox News. Unfortunately, the church in America is more influenced by the power of the critical race theory and, and wokeism. Unfortunately, the church in America is more influenced by the power of the prosperity gospel in preachers like Joel Osteen and, and ministries like Bethel or Hillsong. So unless the American church stops trusting in these other sources of power, repents and turns back to God, the one who has already given his power to us through Jesus, then the American church will continue to indulge in the love of money, the church in America will continue to have domineering, authoritarian, abusive leadership. The church will continue to have ministries that are centered around one celebrity pastor who eventually ends up falling. The church will stop, or sorry, if the church does not understand these things, then the church will continue to cover up for sexual abuse within the church. The church will continue to indulge in sexual immorality. It will continue to compromise with the culture. 
It will continue to have seeker-sensitive ministries, division, etc., etc., etc. I think the problem of the church in America is that we do not understand the power that is at work in us. It is the power of Jesus. It is not the power of money. It's not the power of other things. It's not the power of the Second Amendment. It's the power of Jesus that is work that is at work in the church. So I believe that we should join in prayer with Paul and ask God to give us, to give his church the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge so that we can understand the implications of our salvation in the gospel of Jesus. The gospel saves us not just so that we are better people or so that we are more morally good people or whatever. The gospel saves us and it brings us into the family of God. It makes us a part of a new humanity. It makes us a part of a transformed people that is influenced and empowered by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. The church is God's holy temple where he dwells. So in chapter 2, Paul goes into a little bit of more detail, uh, uh, especially about some of the things that he, sh- he uh, already wrote in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he has two main points. One of the points is that he has brought us from dead to life. He has created a new humanity. And in the second half of chapter 2 is that he has made a new person out of two different ethnic group. So he has created a new humanity and he has created a new person or a new family, we could say. So uh, I'm going to read chapter 2 verse, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the air, the spirit that is not at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in chapter two, he goes back and he, he reminds the Ephesians about God's grace for them, about God's salvation for them. And he reminds them that at some point they used to be dead. They used to be spiritually dead. They used to be completely helpless. And I think the reason why he is reminding them of how helpless they were is to emphasize the grace of God 
in saving them. He is reminding them that they were completely dead, that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. There was not a good enough work that they could perform or there were not good enough works that they would perform that God would be impressed and say, oh yeah, I'm going to save these people because they're so good because they are trying so hard. No, Paul is saying, you were dead. You were hopeless. You were enemies of God. In, in the conversation that I was having with this guy, I, I, I think I mentioned that he told me that he believed that all of humanity were good. We were all, in, we are all intrinsically good. And one of the things he said is that he believed that we are all children of God. And he said that eventually we will all be God. So, you know, that's how confused he was. But the Bible makes it very clear that no one is good. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. We all walked in darkness. We are all children of wrath. We were all under the influence and the power of Satan. We were deceived. We were enslaved to, to sin. There was nothing good in us. And that's what makes the gospel even more beautiful, more amazing that God in his infinite grace, in his mercy, in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved even when we were dead. Not when we were starting to wake up and we were starting to come up with our own plan for bringing ourselves up. No, when we were dead, that's when Christ, that's when God saved us. That's when he had mercy on us. And so he brought us from dead, from death to life. Now he, he does talk about works in verse eight. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So again, he's saying you were not saved by your works. It was nothing good in you, nothing that you did. Now this doesn't mean that works are useless. He does say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were God's, or we are God's new creation. We are God's new humanity. We are God's work of art. And he has given us these good works so that we would walk in them, so that we would live as a new humanity. So that when people look at the church, when the world sees the church, they see the work of Christ. They see the, the power of God at work in us believers. Not only did he make us a new creation, but he also made us a new family or a new man. Uh, look at verses, or look at starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that we, sorry, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he saved us. He brought us from death to life. And he also, especially us Gentiles, he brought us into the family of God. He made us a part of the family of God. Before, there used to be a wall of division. There used to be multiple laws designed specifically to keep the people of Israel separated from the nations around them. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ, when he died in his flesh on the cross, he broke down that wall of division. He abolished all of those laws that were supposed to keep the nation of Israel separated from the nations around them. So that now in Christ, instead of being two different people, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, now in Christ, there is only one man. There is only one family of God, one people of God. And we Gentiles, we get to be a part of that family. That's what he meant back in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What he means is that now through the work of Jesus on the cross, we Gentiles get to share in the inheritance that was originally the Jews' inheritance. He has made one people out of the two. He has made one man out of the two. We belong to the one family of God. Imagine again, imagine the implications for the, for the church. If the church really understood the unity that we have in Christ. Imagine the unity that would be displayed among the, the American church. Imagine what Twitter would be like. It wouldn't be a bunch of people fighting with each other. Imagine what this world would be like if the church were united. If the church really understood that we are one people, that we are one family. Also imagine uh, one thing that I did not emphasize, but But look again at verse 19 and forward. In verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God. We talked about the household of God in the last few weeks, right? And then he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Right there, there is the, the temple language, the temple theology. In him, you also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think one of the reasons why the church in America is doing so poorly is because we have forgotten that we are the dwelling place of God, that we are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. N.T. Wright writes or comments, you cannot get a higher pneumatology or a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And, and to that, I would add, you cannot get a higher ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, than to take the Lord, Yahweh, returning to Zion language and say, this is happening by the Spirit. For a first century Jew, the temple is not just an illustration. The temple is the center of everything. And Paul dares to say that these tiny little scattered Christian communities around Asia Minor Are the, are the new temple or in, sorry, that in these tiny little scattered Christian communities around Asia Minor, the new temple is taking place, is taking shape. Paul is saying to the Jews and to everyone else, this, these little groups of people, these tiny little groups of people, of, of one of them me being in jail, these people, this is actually the new temple taking place right here. Can you imagine the implications of that? If we really thought seriously about the fact that we are God's temple, that we are the place where God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth. I think we would take church a lot more seriously. I think that we would stop thinking of the church as some sort of addition to our, to our lives. And we would start thinking of it as the main thing about our lives, as our main identity. We would stop saying, well, you know, I'm an American first and I'm this first and this first and then, well, and then I'm a Christian. And we would say, no, I am a member of the church first. I belong to the people of God. I am a new creature, a new humanity. I am a part of this new family that God has created through the blood and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. I am the temple of the living God. Jesus dwells within his church. If we thought this way, we would take church a lot more seriously. We would think twice before skipping the gathering of the church. In, verse, in chapter three, Chapter three is, is, uh, seems a little bit ironic at first because Paul is talking about all of these amazing things. Paul is talking about all of these blessings that, that are ours in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the power that is available to us that God has given us. He's talking about this new humanity. He's talking about this new family, this new creation But then in, verse, in, in chapter three, verse one, he opens, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. 
So I think he's addressing the elephant in the room. He's saying, okay, yes, I'm writing this letter from jail. Yes, I just spoke about the power of God and I just spoke about all of these amazing things and yet I am in prison. And so in chapter 3, especially at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is pretty much giving his, his uh, credentials as an apostle of Christ. And basically he is showing how this mystery has been revealed to him and how he is now preaching this mystery. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, and, and right there, it's, it's, the, the cat is out of the bag. It's not a mystery anymore. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might not be, sorry, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is explaining to the Ephesians how this mystery was revealed to him and how even though he is in prison, the power and the word of God are not imprisoned. Even though he is in prison, he is glad that this mystery continues to advance. He is glad that this mystery is being revealed. And he encourages the Ephesians not to lose heart because of his imprisonment. He says, this is actually your glory. In the upside down kingdom of God, the way that the church triumphs is not when we have officials in government or when we have influences and riches and health. Rather, the church accomplishes her purpose when the gospel advances, when the mystery of God is revealed. Through the church, the manifold, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through this phrase, we are reminded that, to quote Paul in Ephesians later, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And think about this. This is amazing. This is something that, that, I, that I absolutely love. Through the church, God is showing off to the principalities and powers. Through the church, God is telling the principalities and powers, the demonic powers and, and Satan, he's saying, look, my son Jesus has all 
authority and power. Look, my son Jesus has triumphed. My son Jesus is Lord. Not any of you principalities and authorities. My son Jesus is the ruler over all things. And he does that through the church. He puts to shame the principalities and authorities by pointing them to the church. And so even though Paul is imprisoned, even though the main, possibly the main preacher of the gospel in that time is imprisoned, they can glory because the mystery of the gospel is being revealed because the principalities and powers are being shut down. And so we do not gain influence as the church uh, when we merely get the, you know, the right person in office or when we pass the right laws or when we, um, I don't know, when, you know, when we do other things, we think that might have some, some influence. Not that those things are necessarily bad, but if the gospel is not advancing, if the gospel is not transforming lives, if the mystery of the gospel is not being revealed to more and more people, if the church, the household of God is not growing, then those things are in vain. Because we can legislate, we can reform as much as we want, but if the people, if the heart of the people are not being transformed, then that's not helping much. People are still by nature children of wrath. And now on the other side of the coin, we do not have any less power or influence when we are persecuted or imprisoned because the mystery of the gospel continues to be revealed because the word of God cannot be imprisoned. As long as the gospel continues to advance, it doesn't matter if we are being persecuted, imprisoned, or even killed because the mystery of the gospel continues to advance. And that is our glory. So Paul ends this section with another prayer. So notice how he begins with praise to God. He prays for the Ephesians. He explains a little bit, he expounds a little bit more, and then he praises God again. And, and, and uh, now he's going to finish with prayer. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is praying now for the Ephesians that they would understand the love of God. Now, these are the two things that Paul prays for. In, in chapter one, he prays, that they would understand, that God would give them the spirit of knowledge and of wisdom so that they would understand the, the power of God. And then in chapter three, he prays basically for the same thing, that they would have the spirit of knowledge and wisdom, but so that they would understand not the power of God, but the love of God. And these are the, the, you know, the two main 
or, or two of the main uh, uh, themes in this book, which is the power of God and the love of God. I think the church in America is doing so poorly because it doesn't understand the power of God at work in them and because it doesn't let the love of God influence them. And I think this is why Paul is praying for the church and saying, I pray that you understand the power of God and I pray that you understand the love of God. And I, I really like this. Uh, I was reading N.T. Wright as I was preparing for this and, and I really like this quote of his. He says, love degenerates if we are not careful into sentimentalism. Power, we worry about because we think it means bossiness or manipulation. But we should think of the love of God on the cross and think of the power of God in the resurrection and think how these would look when we live them out as a community. We should think of the, of the power of God We should think of the love of God on the cross and we should think of the power of God in the resurrection and think how these would look like when we live them out as a community. And I ask you again to imagine, can you imagine if the church really understood that we are a people who are empowered by the power of God, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that seated him at the right hand of the father, that made him ruler over all things and that that power is available to us and a people that who are influenced by the love of God that was displayed when God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to bring us from death to life and to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Can you imagine if the church was characterized by power and love? Can you imagine if when the world looked at the church, they saw the power of God, They said, wow, this, these are not a helpless people. These are people in which the power of God is at work. It is powerfully displayed. But at the same time, they saw the love of God. They didn't think of the power of God as, as some tyrannical, authoritarian, domineering people. But a powerful people and a loving people. People. The power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus, the love of God displayed in the death of Jesus. And so Paul finishes that section with the doxology. Verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes on in, in chapters four through six, and, and we're not going to get into those, but I do want to give you a little bit of a foretaste because I find it very interesting, right? After everything that Paul has been saying, right? After saying the power of God that is available to the church, the love of God, the, the church being the temple of God, Well, someone, maybe a careless reader, would, you know, read all of these things and, and, and expect the practical uh, um, section of the book to say something like, well, therefore, you know, because we have all of these things available, therefore, go and uh, overthrow the Roman government. Therefore, go and destroy all of your enemies. Therefore, go and destroy Diana's temple. 
Therefore, go and abolish uh, worship of, of the goddess Diana. But he doesn't say that. He says, therefore, and just to give you a little taste, therefore, verse, uh, chapter four, verse one, therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. These are the things that should characterize the people of God, the people that have experienced the power of God and the love of God. Patience, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. But that we're going to talk about those things later. I'm getting ahead of myself for now. I do want us to focus on those things. If the church really understood the power of God and the love of God, I think that we would have a very different story. Unfortunately, the, unfortunately, the church in this country, for the most part, does not understand it. And I do believe that we are at risk. We are actually very, very close. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not God. I cannot predict the future. But we are at risk, if not beyond hope of losing our witness in this country, losing our, our candlestick in this country. I pray not. I pray that we, I pray that God sends revival. I pray that we actually wake up, that we understand these things. But right now, my assessment of the church is the church is not doing very well. And I'm talking in, in generic terms, the church in this country. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Praise God that Paul had a way more optimistic view than mine. Praise God that, he, that, that Paul communicated, inspired by the Spirit, that the church is advancing, that the church is triumphing that the power of God, the mystery of God is being revealed. And so my prayer is that we would be all about revealing the mystery of the gospel so that more and more people can be brought into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. Please bless our study of the letter to the Ephesians. Please speak to us. Please speak what you know that we need to hear as your church. We pray for your spirit to reveal to your church your great power that is at work in us. We pray that your church would wake up and realize that we are the temple, that we are your temple, that your spirit dwells within us. That in your son Jesus, through the church, you are uniting all things in heaven and on earth. Also, I pray that you help us to understand by your spirit the love that you have for us that you help us to understand and remember how you brought us from death to life. How you rescued us, even though we were dead, we were your enemies. 
We were, son, we were children of disobedience, sons of wrath. You made us your children by your love, by, by your mercy and your grace. You made us into a new people, a new family. You have included us with your people. You have included us in the inheritance that was not ours by birthright. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the one who gave his life to break down this wall of hostility. Who is the one who shed his blood to save us. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.